0: Welcome to the Scaling Tech Podcast, where we help you manage your growing engineering team. Through expert interviews, we help you navigate the challenges of leading, hiring, growing, and nurturing your tech team to deliver the value your customers demand. Brought to you by agilityfeet.com, experts in staffing engineering teams in Latin America for clients globally. Selling, sure, you can sell data sets. I mean, that's one way to do that. Honestly, I find that very unappealing for most organizations because these days, our data can offer um, a lot of competitive advantage. Um, You know, our our data reflects understanding that it's distinct to us as an organization. Why would we give that away, right? Instead, we should should keep that and we should be using it again, monetizing it in different ways for, for gain. And so in addition to selling data sets we can use data analytics and we can improve work. We can improve operations, lower our cost structure, improve the products that we're selling to to increase our sales.
1: Welcome to the Scaling Tech podcast, the podcast for leaders of growing software engineering teams. I'm Erin Singh here with my co-host David Alfaro. David, you've worked on some very data-centric applications. What is something you've learned from working with large data sets?
2: Well, there's a pathology here is uh, at every single level of the organization and I'm meaning let's I mean let's start by saying uh, even the 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 data engineer, the software engineer uh, the the information architect, the the uh the product designer, the product manager, even the, the 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 people at customer service. All of these guys they have great ideas about how to improve the product and, and they are convinced that they if they if the improvements are implemented, the product will sell more. Right. In other words, they are convinced that they can deliver more value and therefore bring more money into the company. But, but the pathology relies on the fact that I don't see in in the cases i've've' I've been familiar with, uh, I don't see an initiative to bring everyone every every of every people in that set of uh, concerned people. In, in a place, in a table, to talk about it and, and try right. to actually try something different or improve it in a way that they suggest. Yeah. And 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 I was so engrossed by uh, uh, Barb uh, Wicksom book because it. I love the topic. Is data is everybody's business. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not just the realm of the data scientists, right? And I right, think even right. companies that even by virtue of their business model, know that they're dealing with large data sets and that's what they're sort of selling to their customers, they may still not be thinking about it as the purview of everyone in the organization Um, and all of those people across different roles in the organizations that have ideas about monetizing that data, like you said. And so I think this was a really interesting conversation it's interesting to me to consider all the different ways that data can be used and monetized by a business. It's, it's not as simple as just selling data. That's a misconception, as Barb talks with us about today. You know, that's just one path. You know, there's improving and wrapping of data, ways to increase revenue, reduce costs with data. So learning about, uh, more about all of that has definitely shifted my, my mindset. Uh, So I really appreciated this book, Data is Everybody's Business, from uh, Professor Barb Wixom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, yeah, that was a great conversation we had with her. So let's get to our interview with Professor Barb Wixom. Dr. Barbara Wixom is a principal research scientist at MIT Sloan's Center for Information Systems Research. Since 1994, her research has explored how organizations generate business value from data assets with him as a leading academic scholar publishing in such journals as information systems research mit sloan management review mis quarterly and mis quarterly executive prior to mit cisr barb was a tenured faculty member at the university of virginia where she was one of my professors when i was there in graduate school barb's a two-time recipient of the very prestigious university of virginia's all university teaching award her most recent book is called Data is Everybody's Business, published by MIT Press. And that will be the primary subject of our conversation today. Welcome to the Scaling Tech Podcast, Barb. It's great to have you here.
0: Thank you, Aaron and David. It is wonderful to be here.
1: Uh, it's so good to have you here. Let's start with the title of the book. Uh, hmm. Why is data everybody's business?
0: Well, you know from being in my classroom that I have always felt like <laughs> everyone had to pay attention to this uh, this thing called data. Um, but back in the day, it was a nice to know about. There would be pockets in an organization where stuff was happening with data and you would almost look around and point to it. <laughs> that's happening with data, that's happening with data. Today is completely different where organizations need everybody across the enterprise to partake in data. And that could mean helping to create data assets, helping to understand and manage them, exploiting and using data assets for the good of the company's mission or to produce financial returns, um, and on and on and on. And so because of this new need to have such um, expansive, broad participation, um, we have to now level set and um, teach everyone what this data is so they can um, really help the organization do what it needs to do.
1: And when we talk about things like data monetization, as you talk about in your book, it could involve you know, maybe the more obvious things of, of selling customer data, but that's not the only way to monetize data. Uh, can you talk about some of the other ways that an oh enterprise my gosh, and monetizes? I,
0: yes, let's please do, because I really do not enjoy um, the, the thinking that data monetization means selling data sets. That right. is such a narrow perspective, and it's such a small piece of what data monetization is, and I think that's one of the big challenges we have in the field is that Narrow understanding, I think, really holds us back as organizations and as leaders in terms of how we could be using our data for the good of our organization's financial health.
2: So, Barb, yeah, Barb, before, before you go and answer that important question, I want to make uh, a comment. Uh, um, a great insight, no, yeah, a great insight that I had after reading your book uh, was. Or benefit, let's call it a benefit, is like that every time that you mention data uh, in the raw sense, and then how the, and the, it requires a, uh, the, I mean that the actually b- before it can become value, you have to transform it into something that that, that is valuable. Uh, Something that came to my mind very clearly is uh, uh, the the uh, the example of oil. I mean, the fact that I have oil in my backyard doesn't make me rich by itself. Is 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 the I mean, a lot of work has to be done to 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 extract the oil and work on it and find a market for it and and sell it. I mean, the, the entire process. By itself is what makes it valuable, not the raw asset by itself.
0: Well, well, David, what you're talking about is a resource, right? Right. Data, right. data is exactly. an organizational resource. And right. resources are um, there in order to be used for some purpose, right? They're an input mm-hmm. to an organizational system that helps the organization produce outputs. That and so data is one of many resources that an organization has. And so mm-hmm what we're trying to do with this book is to have people appreciate that if if we have a resource like data that is everywhere in our organization and we're not leveraging it i mean that's just simply irresponsible i mean what would you say if we had people across the organization and we just ignored them Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or even equipment mm-hmm. or plants mm-hmm. or buildings. And these are resources, right? If we just ignored them and pretended they weren't a part of how we create value, it doesn't make sense. So why are we doing that with data? Data is a resource. And again, going back to the definition, Aaron, it, it is a resource that can be monetized and that's not good, bad, and different, right? You can monetize in good ways and in bad ways, you know, frankly, unethical ways. Um, but if we are acceptably monetizing, what that means is we're taking our data and we are converting that data so that the output ultimately results in financial returns of the organization. And so selling, sure, you can sell data sets. I mean, that's one way to do that. Honestly, I find that very unappealing for most organizations because these days our data can offer um, a lot of competitive advantage. Um, you know, our, our data reflects understanding that it's distinct to us as an organization. Why would we give that away, right? Instead, we should, we should keep that and we should be using it again, monetizing it in different ways for, for gain, And so in addition to selling data sets, we can use data analytics and we can improve work. We can improve operations, lower our cost structure, improve the products that we're selling to to increase our sales so we can improve with data. We can take data and wrap data analytics around our offerings in the form of features and experiences to increase the value proposition for our customers so that they're gonna stay more, buy more, pay more, right? Or interestingly, we can sell, but not even data sets, we can sell informational solutions. Um, I don't know if you remember this example back from class 15 years ago, Aaron, but um, (laughs) one of my earliest case studies, it actually started back in 1995, was Owens and Minor in Richmond, Virginia, a medical supply um, distributor. And what they found is that their information about how hospitals were paying for medical products, you know, what their average prices were and such, that they could sell informational solutions to help hospitals reduce their costs. So for instance, they could sell information to help um, a hospital understand if they were buying products off contract versus on contract. And if you can move all your products on contract, then you would get the price that you, you negotiated for or and on and on and on. And so when we say selling in, in our Improve wrap selling types of language for monetization. Um, again, I don't even really consider sets at the at the top of the list for selling. It's selling these from solutions that are based on what we know in order to help those in the marketplace solve a really important problem.
2: I, I some, uh, more and I mean uh, more and more people, especially businesses, are becoming aware that data. I mean, about the issue of data ownership. Uh, I mean, even from a just just layman perspective, now now people are more aware that the data they they put up or that they post in in the social networks, they start they start they they began to realize, hey, these companies are making a lot of money out of my. I mean, something that I did. and now it's becoming an issue. Uh, so it, it's, it's um, and our business, I mean, and businesses will have way more incentive to be more uh, uh, careful or more interested in, in protecting or, or fighting or discussing the ownership of data and how that impacts the value that I can deliver to them using their, their data. Um, so it's and with that? I mean, the, how ownership plays a role in this process?
0: Well, again, so so I think your that perspective that you just laid out is pretty narrow. We're talking about mm-hmm. people, data. Again, it seems like you're also kind of tying back to that selling data sets, right? Um, because think about ownership as an organization where you know I own. My customer data. So I know transactions that have taken place in my systems, you know, me as an organization and with Aaron and me as an organization with you, David. Well, if I'm an organization and I start using that data, using your data, so that I can more effectively serve you, you know, for instance, if I'm a bank and I'm trying to figure out where to put um, bank branches and I'm leveraging data about my customers and who goes into bank branches to better place those, I would hope you'd be thrilled that that would be used, right?
1: And so that's
0: improving, right? I think we all can get on the same page that that is a fabulous way in order to improve, right? In terms of wrapping, um, this actually is a true story. There was a bank, where when there was a lot of, I mean, there's consistently um, headlines and fear of improper people data use. And again, we we can go into that. There are bad uses that we want to prevent. Um, But what the bank decided is that they were going to take a very dramatic um, stance and let people only opt in, which basically means no one's going to opt in. So basically what that right. means, they're not going to have any data to work with. Well, what happened was, is that bank in their servicing of customers, weren't um, they weren't including what they knew about customers because they couldn't use the data. And so they had people who had a loan with them getting loan solicitations or they had a mobile app and there were no features to really provide because they didn't have access to that data. Well, what happened was they started getting customer complaints. And before you know it, escalated all the way to the executive committee. And the board in Exco said, we have to change our policy because we are not serving our customers and we are not operating in effective ways by not using, in a responsible way, information about our customers. So so I I just wanna make sure that's the vast amount of what's happening, which is totally mm -hmm. what we should be doing and appropriate. Now we can hit the inappropriate stuff now if you wanna go into that, but I just want you to appreciate, you know, when we make these sweeping judgments and statements, often we're talking about these exceptional cases and not the majority of efforts that need to take place.
2: I'm not sure how was in a sweeping statement or uh, having a nervous, Point of view what i'm saying is what i'm realizing is that the cases that you have so far established are i am a company and i have I clients and the interactions with my clients we generate data so how can i use that resource to improve the experience and that was different to my point of view when i established my question i was probably thinking what happened if you have a company that has data, and maybe there are, and maybe I am an entrepreneur, and, and I want to participate in improving a solution for this or a company, maybe a B two B relationship, and then the, the company that actually has the data says, "Well, but this is my data. I mean, it's my clients, my data. So the relationship I want to establish with you is is now the concern of ownership is is more, more of an issue." uh i'm probably uh, afraid so there,
0: there are a lot of strategies so let's take patient data that's very sensitive uh-huh. data. okay right um we want collaboration to help happen in healthcare these days because we want to prevent disease we want um we want to use patient health data for social good purposes and for in, in productive ways um, and so w- there's a difference between owning a data because every player would would agree that a person owns their patient data end of story when you talk about ownership but there's a difference mm-hmm. between owning the data which the patient does and having the rights to monetize all right, right and right. again monetize right. by improving by wrapping by selling right and right, so right. that's the first thing that's we have to make sure we know that distinction but then also Perfect. you can take patient data and appropriately transform it for use where there's, a, there's no longer an association. There's, there's a change in, in the nature of the records so that they're still useful, mm-hmm. um, but, then they, but they still inherently have, have value for whatever purpose they're being used for. Right. And so that's what's going on today, again, to acceptably right. use. And so one of my cases is, for instance, it was Anthem Health, uh, Health they're now Elevance. And, mm-hmm. and they took a year um, to basically prepare millions of, of patient records by de identifying them, adding security um, techniques to the records. They introduced synthetic data. Um, mm-hmm. They kind of made up data, but then they had to work very hard to um, make sure that analysis could be done with the same predictive power. So, for instance, they they had to go back to running models on their in-house data, running models on the new data, and making sure you know it could properly right. make predictions that kind of stuff that data after a year of preparation and curation into this data asset of patient health, that's now what Elevance uses in order to co-create all kinds of AI based disease prevention, um, solutions, sure. startups and researchers and that kind of stuff. So, well,
2: in, yeah. In fact, I just saw a video, I mean, Google, uh, Pinchar from uh, this year from Google just announced, um, a very interesting uh, thing that is going on is that they took all these millions of images of, of uh, iris scans, and now they have enough data, and, and they're running this experiment of this this uh, process experiment in India, and now they they have the capability to predict just by the iris scan way better what is the, the the medical outcome of patients in a year. Uh, I mean, th- that is a just fantastic case. I mean, way better, way better than the doctor can do. I mean, and it is impossible for a doctor to do because there are so many data points besides right. the Paris scan. So, I mean, that is a fantastic example of how things can go,
0: Yeah. how, how
2: good things can go.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, it's kind of funny if, if you had to ask me what I'm most concerned about when it comes to acceptable data use, um, it, it's actually not as much selling consumer data sets and such. I think it's a big problem, but I think there's a lot of attention on it. I think most organizations, especially ones who you know have proper governance and such, they are aware and putting in place ways to manage um, properly. Mm-hmm. Where What I think is off the radar, and you'll see it in in some of my research at Scissor, is um, employee data use. I, I think that's people data that's actually off the radar. And why employee data use is so important is because employees are the ones actually performing a lot of tasks in organizations. And so as organizations are trying to use data analytics, use AI specifically, to, to streamline, to re-engineer and such. A lot of the domain expertise they're using, a lot of the um, events they're using is employees. And so what we've been working on in our research center are coming up with frameworks for how to make sure using foundations of human dignity, how to make sure that employee data is treated and managed in the appropriate ways. So,
2: okay. And you, you give me an example I, I don't get?
0: Well, so for, so for instance, yeah, yeah. you know, one of, one of my, let me take a, a, a case yeah. of a company who did it right. Okay. Just be clear. Um, okay. So yeah. GE um, wanted to um, introduce life-saving principles into their compliance processes for contractors. So just to give you a sense, uh, GE employs 80,000 contractors a year and they use 3000 mm-hmm. people to onboard them. And this is mm-hmm. in a particular part of GE where they do very sensitive business around like nuclear power plants. So you cannot mess around, right? There's a lot of regulation that you have to follow. Mm-hmm. People have to comply very heavily, a whole list of things they have to do in order to be able to work in mm-hmm. these scenarios like nuclear power plants. All right. Mm-hmm. well. GE decided they wanted to add additional life-saving principles to comply with above and beyond regulation. But they were like, oh my gosh, how we, we don't really have the money to invest in even more people. They are already at 3,000 of these assessors, right? So they said, I wonder if AI can help us review these just tones of documentation that the contractors have to provide let's train AI models using, using natural language processing to help us identify whether these additional principles and, you know, to save efficiencies and such. So long story short, this, they thought at first it was going to be a couple week project. It was a couple years. That's very typical in, in AI. Um, but But in order to understand how to judge and oversee these documents, they needed to use the actual evaluators. The people who usually evaluate mm-hmm. were the ones who had to mm-hmm. create a bag of words and and compare what the models were predicting versus real you know, reality. And they had to go back and really review and they were very into right. that training. Right. Well, if you think about it, that's expertise. That's a part of the employee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if if that expert and this was not the case in this particular example, because GE had no thought of reducing headcount. They were trying to just keep their current headcount fixed, having them do more. Does that make sense? But but in some cases, in other examples, there would be a person helping to streamline a process, and then the process goes away or is re-engineered and there's job loss. And so the question is then, what is the right of the employee who is sharing their very special expertise, potentially, you know, giving up their advantage for the good of the company? What is the company's um, responsibility in terms of how to treat that employee or how to mm-hmm. communicate to that employee, how to gain consent? That their information right. is collected and used, those types of that. That's what exactly.
2: I mean. I mean, exactly. I mean, the point is consent. A uh, rational consent is is uh, given, the right context, and I can imagine that could work fantastically, especially with uh, uh, the generative models. I mean, just training the model with uh, a problem, then the the person that knows what will be the nice outcome, and then doing that thousands of times, and then we will abstract the principle and then just apply it. Uh, That is wonderful. I like it. Thank you for the example. I appreciate it. All right. Let's take a pause here for an ad break, and we'll be
1: right back with Dr. Barbara Wixom to talk more about generating business value from your data assets. Building custom WebRTC video applications is hard, but your go-live doesn't have to be stressful. We thought we were ready to launch our video application, but we discovered it's a lot harder than we thought. Live video applications are not like building other web or mobile apps. Our team worked hard out there today, but we just didn't have all the right pieces. I'll tell you what we should have done. We should have brought in the live video experts from WebRTC Ventures. If you're building a live video application, then trust the experts at WebRTC.Ventures to help you design, build, test, deploy, and manage your custom-built application, or integrate live video into your existing application. Contact us today at WebRTC.Ventures. We're back with Dr. Barbara Wixom on the Scaling Tech podcast. Barb, uh, let's talk a little bit about the framework uh, that you lay out in Data is Everybody's Business for the necessity of having capabilities, initiatives, and connections. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so I hope what we've done is simplify how you can be fruitful with your data. That's really important because as we are trying to engage across an organization, we need common language, we need simple frameworks, You know, it's hard to get everyone on the same page, and that's what these frameworks are intending to do. So if I look across my 29 years of research, there are three frameworks that I genuinely believe and have empirically, you know, and and theoretically shown are, are what you need to know. This is what you need to know when it comes for creating value from data and realizing it, right? So the first is what we've already been talking about is you have to understand that at the core, there are three ways to take data and produce financial returns. You can improve, you can wrap, you can sell. We've already had that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are also five capabilities that you have to have in place in order to do any of those. You need data management, which produces data assets that, that people can find, use, and trust. You need a data platform that can cost efficiently, serve up data assets in and now out of the organization even. You need data science that can detect what humans can't. You need customer understanding, which is both core and latent needs in the marketplace. So you know you're working on the right stuff and you need acceptable data use. And this kind of gets back to our uh, discussion on data ownership and such, because as you probably could sense from the passion that comes out of discussions around data ownership and all of that, if you don't have your governance down, you will just freeze. You can't move forward. People won't know how to move forward. Now we call that acceptable data use and not data governance. Because a lot of times when you use the term data governance, people think regulation and law And it turns out you need more than that. You need to be compliant for regulation and law. But you also have to understand ethically what's right, because there are some ethical gray areas that law and compliance doesn't necessarily cover in this space. And you need to understand your values, values of the organization and values of your your stakeholders, whether it be your regulators, your citizens whatever those values are and so it's it's actually acceptable data use is a, a really important capability to provide the proper oversight so those five capabilities what's interesting about them is that they are built with practices you have to like practice so like data management you have to kind of start with really basic practices like things called master data management and metadata management. You know, if you're in the data space, these are just very foundational types of practices, but they're necessary. You have to kind of start there and then start getting more and more sophisticated with your data management practices. Like then we might get into data quality and then we get into data integration, and then we can get into sophisticated curation, like bringing in external data and adding them to what we have, like weather data and that kind of good stuff. So anyway, all of these five capabilities, those are important that's kind of how you proceed and are are good at improve rep and sell. The final framework, framework three, is my connections uh, toolkit. And basically what we've identified in the research is that if you are designing your organization so that everybody can participate in data, there are, two kinds of connections you have to have. You need a set of connections that help inspire innovation. So for instance, we like the design of a cross-functional team. You know, if we want to figure out a new way to, um, uh, let's say take the GE example. If we want to have a new way of using AI to help with compliance, then what that usually takes is a cross-functional team of people from compliance and people from data analytics and maybe people from other parts of the organization, maybe from the digital part of the organization. You know, you put a team together and by working together and they share their knowledge and they learn from each other, then what comes out is this innovative new way to, in this case, oversee contractor onboarding. Okay, so so you need connections that help with those innovations. And then you need connections that help scale best practices once they're, once they're developed. So for instance, this GE initiative, you know, they, they really created a, a really cool um, use case for AI that's really helping the organization in this space. It could be there are other parts of GE that need to do document reviews that could potentially benefit from knowing about this. And so in addition to just innovating and, and having those localized types of, of benefit benefits happening organizations need to then make sure that they scale those out so that others can, can do that too. So, so basically the third framework are these um, five different ways to either innovate or scale and by enacting those connections over time, that's how you build a data democracy where you have people across the organization participating and engaging in the right way.
1: So it sounds like it's really important that those data scientists uh, are not uh, locked away in one wing of the building. Uh, you know, you talked about the importance of cross-functional teams and, you know, like, Dev and I, our background is more in software development, right? We may or may not realize the value of some of the data assets that we have in something that we're building, right? Or and we don't
0: want to lock you away it. either. We don't want to lock right, anybody. Exactly. away. Right, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, I, call, I call data democracy the creation of purple people. Uh, years ago, I went to a conference. And so I can't take credit for this concept, but I love it. And at the beginning of the conference, um, they had invited... Uh, This was back in the days of data warehousing. They had invited the data warehousing manager and for them to bring their business champion. So two people came to this conference. And at the beginning of the conference, the data warehousing manager got a red shirt and the executive sponsor got a blue shirt. And by the end of the conference, they both left with purple shirts. And the point was that there was a blending of knowledge so that the business person became more data savvy. The data person became more business savvy, and now they're all purple. Well, that's what we need in our organizations, right? We need to have the the data people, and these could be data people who already exist across the organization, but are being upskilled. You know, maybe going from um, more kind of um, either. Lower level types of analytic sophistication to higher levels, you know, moving from pivot tables to using R programming, for instance, you know, um, or maybe they're using techniques that they've been using for a long time and there's the chance that they can modernize a bit into how they're doing things. So you have those people all over the place and then you want them working um, and connecting with all kinds of different people, you know, software, um, developers with, uh, domain experts, um, unit frontline workers, you know, in fact, um, one of the cases I'm doing, um, right now is a large, um, uh, it's not released yet. So I'm going to be very generic in this, but it's a, it's a large, let's say, construction type of, of organization and they were able to create some really sophisticated, AI models to help enable call center um, people help serve customers better in very complicated kind of scenarios. And and that was done by being with those call center people, you know, and living their life as a data person and and coming to the table with models and and analytics, uh, analytical techniques and decision-making process understanding, and then over time collectively. They have produced now all kinds of AI assistance to help call centers and reduce the time spent uh, in serving customer needs from 20 minutes to a half an hour per customer now to two to three minutes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a fascinating area to me. This is something that in in some of our work with some of our clients, we we overlap with of agent assist type of applications and how you help them to have better and more efficient access to enterprise data. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's fascinating seeing how um, large language models can be incorporated into that as well, in terms of helping the agent, whether it's to faster resolve a customer service issue or um, you know, uh, upsell opportunities, things like that, I think are all really interesting. Um, and, and perhaps that's an example of another area I wanted to make sure we cover too, is how to use uh, the data monetization can be about it's all about the bottom line. Right. And so you could be increasing revenue. You could also be reducing costs through it. So maybe that's a good example of one way you can reduce costs by making the the agents more efficient in their work in the contact center. Can you talk a little bit more about how to use data monetization to reduce costs?
0: Yeah. So and, and two ways to think about this. So improving is changing work, changing the nature of work using data analytics. And about 51% of returns, of financial returns come through improving. So too often organizations really dismiss the use of AI and data um, or data analytics for internal types of operational changes, but you're doing yourself a huge disservice. I mean, there is huge money, huge money, right? Um, and, and even if you're already improving, a good example is my case of BBVA, where they were already doing bank branch redistribution as a bank. I mean, that is a core thing that, that banks work on. But when BBVA started getting more and more into sophisticated data science and AI, they brought very modernized techniques to bank branch distribution projects and initiatives. and From the outset, by introducing these these new data analytics opportunities, uh, the first year they saved $35 million above what they were already achieving through their activities. So we're talking about big gains. Now I do want to say that improving doesn't necessarily mean cost reduction. It can also mean top line sales increase if your improvements improves your products. So for instance, a retailer that I worked with was able to use data analytics in order to better optimize when they were doing markdowns on their clothing. And it turns out they were marking down their clothing too soon. And they found out if they could just wait another week in certain cases, that it would be about a $20 million lift, but through higher sales because they were keeping prices higher, they were more in stock. Does that make sense? So we're improving work. We're improving that process of markdown cycles, but we're in that case getting top line growth. So that's improvement. Now, let me give you an example of wrapping with cost reduction. And and you'll appreciate this one uh, because this was a company near us when we were at UVA and that was Capital One. But back in the day, uh, Capital One was doing some data wrapping where they were adding features to the credit card transaction statement to help cardholders feel more comfortable that their transactions were not fraudulent. So for instance, they added a geospatial map they added a merchant logo. So I could review my statements and now that I'm seeing the logo and where I spent, I I knew much faster because of the visuals, right? So that was a wrap. And in fact, because of those, um, those new features, those innovations, Capital One was able to measure an expanded use of card. So higher lift because of these specific additions they were adding to the transaction statement. So that was top line. However, what's interesting about it is if you think about it logically, if I'm reviewing my statements and I have a better understanding of whether something's fraudulent or not, I don't have to call the call center as often. So what it also did is it ended up lowering the cost of call service. Now, that wasn't the, the lead metric, you know, this was a wrap and, and the product owner was first and foremost adding those features for the good of the card holder to raise the value proposition of the card, you know, and so it was considered wrapping, but that wrapping also influenced cost reduction for the organization. So that just some interesting dynamics because again, reducing cost, we see it again and again and again and how much data analytics can help that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. In in cases like that, whether you're improving or wrapping, uh, how do you, uh, do, do you have any tips on the best ways to measure the value of that to the organization? Because it seems like a lot of these things you're going to have to measure over a long period of time.
0: Absolutely, It's going to
1: be lots of variables going on at the same time. You know, you may be uh, keeping inventory at retail price longer, you know, as you described, but at the same time that a new, Sales campaign is going on, a new market. This is uh, why. Right?
0: This is why you have to know what you're doing. Are you improving? Are you wrapping? Are you selling? And who's in charge? Accountability is huge because it comes down to the person accountable. What are they trying to do? What's their metric? That's what mm-hmm. you have to measure. So if I'm a card holder, I mean, if I'm a, a card product owner, I'm trying to increase usage of the card. That's my metric, that's what I'm gonna measure. I'm gonna measure before, I'm gonna introduce the change, I'm gonna measure after, and that's how I'm gonna figure out if there's a difference in the data analytics feature, which is exactly what they did and which is exactly what they reported on, right? Mm -hmm. Now, again, these other externality, these other benefits in the case of Cat1, for instance, came about once it was on their radar as something they also could track but it was a nice to have because first of all, that wasn't even the purview of the owner of the initiative, right? There there was a there was the owner of the call center who was really happy and pleased. And I'm sure over time they become became more proactive and synergistic about reinforcing those benefits. But but at the end of the day, if you are clear about who owns the work or the product or the business and what are they trying to achieve. You know, and are we trying to retain customers? Or are we trying to acquire new, co- just like any kind of business initiative? And then that's what we have to track. Typically it's done through kind of basic experimentation before, or after there's some change, what was the result of the change? The more granular, the better. Um, in the case of information businesses, if, if, if things are such that you just really can't disentangle what we did with data versus all the other things that went down, then you have to take it at a higher level and be comfortable that data analytics played a significant role in, in the benefits that are being generated. Right. Um, the other thing to consider is just what's the appetite of measurement for your organization. Some organizations are like six Sigma hardcore, you know, measure everything instrument to make sure we have the measurement. And that's fabulous. Those are going to be the organizations that are going to have the easiest time, frankly, you know, in terms of producing really credible results of their data analytics investments. Um, but any organization can figure out some way to communicate and um, in, in a credible way for them how data is making a difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're starting near the end of our time together, unfortunately. Um, David, do you have any other questions you would like to ask?
2: I just feel very appreciative for having Barb here. Thank you for being here, Barb. It was fantastic. Thank
0: you, David. It, it's such a pleasure. I, you know, this this book to me is is very special. It, it's I don't think it's a typical book. Well, I, that's that's I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there are a lot of authors out there who have books um, that are as important to them as this one. And for me, it's honestly almost a finale to my dissertation. You know, I started studying how organizations create value from data in 1994 with my doctoral work. And I feel like 29 years later, I finally kind of know mm-hmm. how this all worked, <laughs> right? And, and this book is my, it's kind of a almost like leaving my legacy of what I've learned mm-hmm. over that time and mm-hmm. what I believe. Mm-hmm. People need to know, and I hope in a simple way so that they can understand it and be a bit more successful with their data. That's my hope.
1: I I definitely enjoyed reading it, and so I'm sure uh, it will be successful for readers in that way and, and appreciate all of the research that went into it. Uh, I do have uh, one final question for you, Barb. Our, our audience are primarily engineering leaders, uh, managers of engineering teams. So they may or may not come from the data science background, probably have data science elements in their teams, however. Uh, when that engineering leader comes up with an idea for data monetization of, of any kind in their organization, what do you recommend in terms of how they sell that to executives within the organization? What do they need to consider before making that internal proposal?
0: Well, first, I'm excited because the the type of person you're talking about is exactly the kind of person I hope will connect because this is the new type of person who needs to take leadership around data monetization, first and foremost. Um, So so if I am an engineering manager First, it's not really even identifying what data analytics can do. It's identifying a problem that's really important that you want to solve. And then using that mindset of connections, we were talking about bringing on data analytics expertise in the form of establishing a cross-functional team to address the problem, or maybe hiring an embedded person, hiring someone with a data analytics bent To sit side by side in my area. And it's through those types of interactions that then solutions start emerging of how to address whatever the business problem is that they're being, you know, trying to be solved. And in terms of selling that, um, it's not about selling the data analytics, it's about selling um, a solution to a problem that probably people are, are aware is a problem. Right. And that's much more um, that's much more straightforward to put a, a business case around. Um, it's very hard with data analytics to project what will be. There's a lot of experimentation, you know, that, that often needs to happen. So it's that testing and learning. And then when there is a glimmer of what could be, extrapolating and using that as evidence. Um, and when you do have a win share the heck out of that win
1: because <laughs> that
0: win is going to be incredibly helpful for subsequent work. And the more that top management starts really appreciating and understanding what can be and what needs to be in order to produce that, then that's when we start really appreciating that data is everyone's business, everyone's involved. And we, we are firing on all cylinders when it comes to data monetization.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Barb. It's really a pleasure to speak with you again. Enjoy the book. The book is available now. It is called Data is Everybody's Business by Dr. Barbara Wixom, published by MIT Press. And uh, check it out. So thanks so much for joining us today on the Scaling Tech Podcast, Barb. Thank you, such a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Scaling Tech Podcast, where we help you manage your growing engineering team. Brought to you by agilityfeet.com experts in staffing engineering teams in Latin America for clients globally. For more information on today's episode and to submit your ideas for future guests, please visit ScalingTechPod.com.